In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last month, four weeks ago, I began with um, the talk about the near-death experience and the those who have nearly died and what they experienced. And we've, I also spoke about those that died and then they were clinically dead and then they were resuscitated or whatever and came back. Some don't even get resuscitated, but some somehow come back to life. And from the feedback that I got, a lot of people um, were quite um, happy with that, with, with, with that talk. They um, learnt a lot from that. But I think there were some parts of it which, because of lack of time, which seems to happen a lot, we lost some detail on some of the points. The first thing was that we said that the researchers who looked into these um, medical, medical doctors and scientists, etc., that actually investigated a lot of these uh, reports, the majority of them, if not all of them just about, we can say that they were not interested in giving any explanation of uh, why there was no visions or things like that of the devil, of hell, etc. It was all to do with good things, except in the experiment which we said, which was the, um, with the Indians, whereby they, one third of them would see things, etc. Now, one person asked last week, what is all this? How do we explain it? Father Seraphim Rose, in his um, book, goes through it and tries to explain something about this phenomenon which is happening now. The main thing to know is that in orthodox literature, in the orthodox teaching, we do not have much of an emphasis of these first couple of minutes of... Um, of a person who has just died. There's not this emphasis. In all these other experiences of these people that came back to life, etc., it's really the whole emphasis is these first couple of minutes and then they came back. That is not enough. These researchers, unfortunately, when they tried to interpret what all this is about, they didn't come to Christianity because to them Christianity is backward. They went to Tibetan things or occult things, etc., etc., but nothing to do with Christianity, especially in the Orthodox Church where we have a complete teaching of dying and life after death. They ignored all that, all the 2,000 years of, of um, the experience of the Church to do with that topic, and they ran here and there and everywhere, but not to Christianity the Orthodox Church, which has kept it. Now, the Protestants have lost a lot because they don't look at, uh, they don't believe in tra tra uh, tradition. While the Catholics, basically, there's not much left of their tradition, and if there is, it's quite a bit distorted. While in the Orthodox Church, <clears throat> we have the complete teachings of the Fathers. I explained last time that. Because of these near-death and after-death experiences that people had, a certain number of teachings developed. And these teachings are important for us to know what was 
or what is the message of these experiences? What's the actual teaching? Firstly, number one, the being of light, which I explained to you, is full of love and non-judgmental and even treats a person's sins, etc., with calmness and humour. That's basically the consensus. Even though, as I said, there are some experiences where people have seen hell and devils, etc., etc., they're usually not advertised because it's very uncomfortable for Western society, for people of today. They don't like those type of things. So most of all, the experiences of heaven and nice things are uh, out there. But by coincidence, if, 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 if what I was, there was actually on the... Um, one of those American cable television that they actually had on, a, one, one, on one Sunday they had a person that went, as he says, went to hell and came back. Then they had another person another week that actually went to heaven and came back. Now that's an exception for Western society. They don't like getting too much into because sometimes people think that they're embarrassing. But that particular news channel, I think they're a bit more religious. So therefore they actually get into these heaven, hell, devil and angels, etc., etc. But, but the main message to society is that uh, when you go over to the other side, you won't be judged. And it doesn't matter what you've done, that's the main message. Number two, uh, the being of light will forgive any type of whatever you've done and thinks that everything is to do with the learning process. We've said that last time as well. Number three, the person experiences a feeling of comfort and peace. So when they are maybe passed on to the next life for those first few minutes, because their body has, because they've shed their body, they haven't, they have no longer got their body. They have a feeling of peacefulness and calmness, etc. Some of them do not, as we said, but the main message is that. The person is not ready to die and needs to return back the body. That's the message. For some reason, it's, it's a little bit... It sounds spiritual, whereby someone says, oh, see, look, that means God is involved because it's saying, well, you're not ready. You've got to come back to life to learn more things, etc., etc., and things like that. As I said, this encourages um, suicide because if people think that the next life's got no judgment, there's no hell, etc., then it doesn't matter if you do something to yourself because you go into the next life, which is uh, a relief for those who are suffering here from anguish, depression, or whatever else people suffer from. Sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's social, sometimes it can be anything uh, suffering, and they can end, them, end their lives thinking, well, I'd rather go to the next life, which is going to be a nice life, as these people teach. Um, very important point, another one, is that one's beliefs and actions have no lasting consequences. It doesn't matter what you believe. You can be Hindu, you can be this, you can be Buddhist, you can be Muslim, you can be Orthodox, you can be Catholic, you can be Protestant, whatever. It doesn't matter, which is a bit like ecumenism. Ecumenism beyond the grave. And then we have uh, the one very important thing, loss of the fear of death. And as I said, looking forward to dying so as to meet the being of light again. Loss of the fear of death. And one young girl last week, I think it was father's daughter, I'm not sure, he, she actually asked, uh, should we fear death? And I didn't answer uh, her, her question, 
but it made me think, I go, no, I want to really answer that question. So I went in and researched a bit more on that, and I have, and I have a lot to say about that. But in the Orthodox Church, yes, we do fear death. Now, people might say that's a bit strange because we don't. We read in the lives of saints that the saints would look forward to dying. Yes and no. Some exceptional, but even Christ himself feared death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was scared. But St. Paul said, um, I, I, um, I can't wait to go to meet Christ in the next life. So Christ, who is God, was scared, but St. Paul, who's only human, wasn't scared. So that seems contradictory. But the point of the, of the, point of the matter is that Christ wanted to show his human nature, knowing that people were going to say in the future that he was just God, that he wasn't human, that it appeared that he ate, and then, but he wasn't human, which is the monophysites. Christ wanted to show completely that he's human, to the point that he even cried when Lazarus died because he was a friend, and he was scared before his crucifixion, and on the cross, he even said, my God, my God, why has I forsake me? To show completely his human nature. Now, some will say, but why is it important to that Christ was human? If we, as Orthodox, do not confess that Christ is God and human, we can't be saved. Because this is the basis of the Orthodox faith. This is the basis of Christianity, that God became man, so that when we think of Christ, we think of God, that he is true God and true man. Perfect God, perfect man. And therefore, that's why. And sometimes, exceptional, that he allows some of his saints to not go through the same thing that he went through, which is that fear, etc. But there are exceptions. In the majority of cases, you read the great saints of the Egyptian deserts, etc., you see that they used to say, God, don't take me now. I'm not ready. I'm scared. I, I, I need more time, etc. So we've got to be very, very careful and say, well, um, oh, we read one life of saint, and because we haven't read many others, we go, I see, orthodoxy, orthodox people should not be scared of death, and we, 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 we go around as if we're drugged or on some type of antidepressant and pretending that we are not scared. And that's wrong. For us, don't look at St. Paul or look at some of the great saints. As you as I'll read later on, even one of the saints of the desert, I forgot, I think it was St. One of the of us, they, they, he, he actually, as he was leaving, he left his body and was going up towards heaven, that he was confronted by the demons and they were arguing in the air they say for about an hour. What were they arguing about? Obviously, because he had some sins. Even though he was a saint. And even though he was a great father. So if that's what we say about them, how much more us who are in the world? Now, you might say, well, if that's the case, this is a hopeless situation because what's going to happen to us? I've actually thought of that when I read books and I go, look at this, look at this saint. Look what he went through and look at that person and that person. I go, well, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to other people when we're 
buried in sins and passions and we haven't even properly even repented and started. That, even though it might sound hopeless, there is more, there is more hope than what you think and I'll, we'll go on to that soon. Okay, so as I said, these people went to the, these Tibetan books, Buddhist books and occult literature to, to kind of work out well, what is the teaching about the soul after death? Well, let's get something out of it to work it out. Completely alien. Their teachings are completely alien to Christian teaching. What is the occult? I have to define that. The occult is contact with evil spirits. Some of them have contact with evil spirits through seances, Others go into trances. Others believe their souls leave in their bodies and go up and they um, have contact with them that way. But in general, it is opposite to God's will. God does not want us to have contact with evil spirits. These people, some people make contact with evil spirits involuntary. It's not their fault. Uh, for some reason, it might occur. They begin to see them. Others promote it, read books about it, go to guides or teachers that will teach them how to come into contact with spirits, which they might believe it's their father, their mother, others believe they're spirit guides, others believe that they're having contact with Buddha, others believe they're having contact even with Christ if they're religious somehow, whatever. They believe the apostles, etc., etc. But this is um, God's law, the church's law is anyone who has contact or tries to make contact with spirits, etc., it is as if they've denied Christ. And the church was very strict on them, not allowing them in the ancient times to commune until their deathbed. That's how strict they were. Now, with pain of heart, I have to say that no one really cares anymore. If you say, oh, some priest might say, oh, that's not good, don't go there, and this and that. But really... Someone might say, are you saying that we should go back to those days and when a Christian read an astrology signs or if a Christian went to a medium or had contact, they should never commune till they die? No, I'm not saying that because obviously people are becoming more weak and, and um, ignorant, so therefore the church is more lenient. But let's not forget about the fact that in ancient times they used to find it that serious. Adultery in those days, St. Basil's canons were 20 years. Fornication, etc., you know, sex before marriage or whatever, all these things were very heavy. The church doesn't do that because then St. John's the faster, he changed the canons and made them more lenient and as we go on, because people are weak, etc. However, let's not forget the seriousness of these sins. The opposite of the occult is the spiritual, where people come into contact with the saints, with angels, with God's will. That, that, that is being God's will. Contact with demons are not, or spirits, whatever they are, are not, is not God's will, even though God might permit it. Permitting is different to that is his will. 
Now, people might say, well, why does he permit it? He permits it for reasons that he knows, for punishment, for correction. Sometimes people can get possessed when they go to these things. There's a lot of reasons for it. But God may, may permit the demons to appear or whatever happens, but he doesn't will it. That's two different things. Like God allows temptations to occur to us. We might have a temptation to fall into some sin. God may permit the temptation to test us, but if we decide to do a sin, that's our fault. We can't say, as St. James in the epistle says, we can't say, oh, God allowed the, the temptation and I fell. No, we fell because we chose to give in to the temptation. St. Anthony says, if we don't go through temptations, if God doesn't allow the demons to bother us, no one's going to be saved. Because some people say, God is cruel. Why does he have, why does he allow demons to exist? Or why does he allow them to bother us? And why does he allow sins to occur? And all these things. It's a test. And we need to have tests. Just like in, in heaven, there was a test. Some angels decided to revolt against God. And some angels decided to stay with God. Those that decided to go against God fell down, fell out of heaven and became demons. It was a test. To have free will, we need a test. And that's what uh, happens. Like at school, when I used to teach, sometimes kids, I used to say, okay, we're going to have a test. Mm, calculus or whatever, integration or something like that. And then they say, oh, I, I, I know all that. I've learnt it. Well, how can I prove, or how can that person really prove that they know their work or not? Obviously, because you have to give a test. When you give a test then the person will show. If the person gets 20% or 30 or whatever, I don't think they really learnt their work. But they can think in their minds that they learnt it. We can think that we love God. We can think that we never will deny Christ. We can think like St. Peter did when he goes, I will never deny you, St. Peter said. And then he denied Christ three times. But there's repentance. But it was a test. That's good. That's humility. Judas also betrayed Christ, but he lost his soul because he couldn't repent. So don't think that God is cruel because he gives us tests. Tests are necessary. Like you meet, like a young person, like some of the young people they meet, a, a, a young man meets a young woman and they say, I love you and love you and love you and love you. That's, that, that's really, really good. Um, the only problem is, how do we know? Because I bought you roses. I bought you an ice cream. You know, we go and we, you know, we go out, we do this, we go that. And as a result of that, a lot of people who have no idea what love is, they say, oh, I'm in love and that I've met my person of my dreams, etc., etc. But of course, when the going gets rough, when something happens, when the person gets sick, or when trials occur, that love that was there with words is not proven indeed. While others, you see, it's proven indeed. Because they stay, they endure, that's true love. Because St. Paul says, love endureth. Love is long-suffering. So that's the test. I did say to you, and I want to get off this soon, I did say to you um, last week that I wanted to go through an example 
of why, of, of how even in the medical arena, that they actually delve in evil spirits and how if we listen to the church, because a lot of people say the church is restrictive. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't do this and don't do that. And people say the church is restrictive. The church is not restrictive at all. The church is love. The church is all-knowing. The church is perfect, not the human. Me as a priest, as a human, I've got faults. Priesthood, that's perfect. When I do mysteries, that's perfect. The bishops, when they do their, their services, when they're perfect. As humans, there can be faults. So don't get mistaken with the human side of the church and the divine side. The church, in its teachings on the divine aspect, is perfect. And as a mother, because we consider the church as our mother, as a mother, the church gives us perfect protection. It tells us exactly what to do in our life for our good, not because it wants to make us suffer. Like people go, oh, it's too restrictive. Oh, it's too claustrophobic. But it's not claustrophobic. For example, the church says, um, in the ancient church used to teach women, for example, shouldn't wear makeup. And people say, that's too restrictive. Why should I listen to that? That's fair enough. And now, the disobedience, what's occurring? Um, infections and a lot of problems. I mean, when you put that stuff on your eyes, it gets absorbed into the eyes. The church says, don't take contraception, for example. That was one thing that the, a lot of the church would say. Don't. But later on, people say, no, I'm not going to listen to that. And now they're finding that contraception causes um, breast cancer and depression, etc., etc. There's a lot of things that the church teaches. The church says, don't go to seances. Don't go to mediums. Don't read astrology. Don't do this. Now, why? We'll see now. Look at these people. These people, not knowing what the church teaches, because they didn't bother to look, one doctor, um... She became very interested in the dying. She became, probably out of sympathy as well, she saw how difficult it was for those that were dying. The suffering, the fear, the depression, the agitation. It's very difficult. And as a result of that, she wanted to study it more because she saw that this is humane. If you can alleviate someone's suffering at the point of when they're dying, this is humane. So she decided to delve into these type of things. And this is what she herself, uh, this is an example of what um, she did. One day this doctor, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, that's not really important. Anyway, she met in her office one of her patients that had died 10 months ago. So she... Uh, uh, she said that in her office appeared one of her patients that had died 10 months ago and was there right in front of her. The woman encouraged the doctor not to give up her work with dying patients. The doctor at the time must have been getting a bit of despair and thinking, I, I can't go on with this work, it's too difficult of helping the dying people, because that's actually quite exhausting. And um, she was having thoughts, but then suddenly, this soul of this person, as she said, came to her and says, no, don't give up, you've got to keep on going. The doctor, as a scientist and psychiatrist, 
She didn't believe in these things. She said, oh, that this, can't be, this can't be real. There's a lot of doctors here, a lot of psychiatrists in particular, a lot of them are atheists, and they don't like those things. They only like to see, you know, measure what's in the brain, and things that are spiritual to them are backward. So she decided to use her scientific type of inquiry, and she goes, okay, write me out something on a piece of paper. She said to the soul of the person there that she thought it was. And then she took the note and gave it to a handwriting analyst who had the original, some writing of her, this person that before they died, they checked it and they go, this writing of this, the, what the, the soul did, and the writing of the person before 10 months before they died is exactly the same. So this made the doctor conclude it must be the person. Now, I've told you this before. People say, why do you go into this much uh, detail of these things? I go into the detail because when we are ignorant of, of orthodox teachings, when we are on the internet continually or when we read books continually but we do not know our orthodox faith well, when you hear these things, I guarantee you the majority of orthodox would say, oh, look at that. The souls can come back. Even though the church says the church souls don't come back, which we're going to come back to in a minute. Or, as I said before, on TV, continually, there are these things of psychic detectives and the other person, that guy that does the medium, that he contacts the dead, etc. And all these things, a lot of times, are backed up by doctors and scientists and psychiatrists, etc., and people, because that's more their gods, the medical world is their god, not orthodoxy, of course, but that's their god, and they say, oh, it must be true. As I said to you last week, they do experiments and they use um, measuring instruments and they check that this person's um, aura is the same as that person's aura, etc., etc. So this is what she... She went on this, that um, the writing was the same in both cases. And for us, as orthodox, those, that type of proof is not enough. Because the demons can play tricks as well, but also our imagination can play tricks. Okay. After she had this initial contact, this doctor, she began to get more into it. And then she started to have more and more frequent and intimate contact with this particular spirit, or whatever she thought it was, and other spirits as well. In 1976, during a conference of 2,300 physicians, nurses, and other medical professions in San Francisco, she actually said, like I'm speaking to you people, um, of course, there's not 2,300 people here, but in her case, because people run to that. See here? Not many. Because we don't run to orthodox things and truth. We run to lies, stupidities and distortions and anything which is alien to God. That seems to be more. I mean, if you look at those uh, Australian idols and American idols, I mean, from what I heard, I think American idols... About 20 million people watch that. 
And in here in Australia, 1.1, 1.9 million watts, etc., etc. I mean, I don't think we could even get all the orthodox together that could even make that, that many people. Unless, of course, I'd, maybe if I did a singing routine on the stage or I danced or something, which I can't, but let's just say if I did, maybe then I might get more people. And that's what the Catholics do and the Protestants. They do all these little funny things, dress up as clowns and, and try and get the people in. I don't believe in that. To me, I think truth is truth. You preach truth. Christ didn't do those things. He preached truth. The Holy Fathers preached truth in seriousness. Those things, they think that they attract people to the church. Like I heard that the, the Archbishop of Greece, who just recently died, I think of cancer, he um, was a very social person and he would joke and, you know, he was like a really jovial person and he attracted a lot of people and said to them, come to the church, you can wear earrings, you can wear what you want, girls can wear the pants, you can do whatever you want just as long as you come to church. And, and, and first... There was an increase, and people go, oh, look, this, this bishop's bringing people to the church. I mean, he was doing it, trying to bring them in. But from what I heard later on, a lot of those people didn't stay because it, like, they wanted to be constantly entertained. They didn't come to the church for truth, for salvation. They came to the church to be entertained. Well, that's what you got all these other shows for. You want to be entertained, you watch that. You don't come to church to be entertained. You come to the church... For the salvation of your soul. I come to the church for the salvation of my soul. And as a priest, I have to struggle for the salvation of your soul. You people have to come to church for the salvation of your soul. And the salvation of the souls of those around you. Um, your children, etc. So we mustn't think that the church is backward, etc. Et and anyway, people, um, if, you like, if, you, if, if you go to America... A lot of the English Orthodox communities over there, they don't do all those clown things and yaha and hoo-hoo's and things. They actually serious struggle, fasting, prayer, etc. That's what it, that, that's what it is. God is not a joke. The salvation of our soul is not a joke. The salvation of our soul is the most serious issue in our life. Nothing else should be as serious as that. Whoever loves father, mother, brother, sister, children more than me, what does that mean? It means whoever loves or, or loves those people and those people become an obstruction in your own salvation, then you're lost. If your parent, for example, say your mother or your husband or your wife says, I don't want you to believe. If you believe, I'm going to leave you. Some people do that. Some people come to this type of... Um, confrontation. Whoever loves husband, brother, more than, more than me is not worthy of me. So if you're going to say, I don't want to lose my husband because um, I can't go through life without a husband, then you are saying that you don't want salvation. She actually um, said to the people, last night I was visited by Salem, my, my spirit guide, and two of his companions I mean, ridiculous names, Anchor and Willie. I don't know where they come from. I mean, she, anyway, they were, um, they were with us till 3 a.m. in the morning. This is what she's saying to doctors. And you, you would think, wouldn't they walk out? They didn't walk out. They actually stayed there. And you'll see in a minute that she said that they were with us till 3 o'clock in the morning, her spirit guide and these other two things, whatever they are, Anchor and Willie. 
They spoke and touched with the most incredible love uh, and tenderness imaginable. And she said, this was the highlight of my life. That's what she said to all these people. And the result was, did she get rotten tomatoes? No. Did she get booze? No. Did the people stampede out? No. They stood up in tribute with tears and clapped her. See? They clapped her and they were so impressed. They had tears in their eyes because last night she spoke to Anchor and Willie and she also, and her spirit guide. Now, you're laughing. We laugh, but we also should never laugh kind of in a way which is to say, oh, they're so stupid. Because, remember, we who know more will be judged more. So if we actually begin to entertain in our homes Anchor and Willie, then we will be condemned more than, than these people who don't know much. But what I'm trying to show you is how much ignorance occurs in the world today. This is, what's, this is occultism, and this is similar to what happens where, where we say in, in, I think it's, how do you say it, shamanism? Shamanism, thank you, I just get up with that name. And these people who a lot of them are in North, North Asia and America and all that, North America, they actually have contact with spirits, which they think is their ancestors or whatever they believe. It's similar. And I said to you last time that 50 to 70 years ago, these type of things were only in kind of secret places that people would go to secret societies or, you know, back streets, etc., that would get involved in these type of seances and this spirit contact. Now it's more open. And that's a sign that we are actually entered in a, in, in a really bad period of our time. That even though Christianity came to the world... People are rejecting Christianity because contact with spirits is complete rejection of Christianity, which before Christ came, yes, the pagans, they had contact with spirits. And when Christianity came, after, especially when the, when the whole world, when it spread through, that stuff, people began to know this is forbidden by God. You do not have contact with spirits. Now we've gone back to that time. And that is not a very good sign. Actually, St. Gregory the Great says that when the spiritual world, the, sorry, the spiritual world is moving closer to us, so really there are more and more people that actually, even if they don't go to those things, they can actually see things, feel things, and that means that this, this, the, the world of the evil spirits is coming more and more in contact with mankind, which before wasn't. And this is as a result of apostasy. This is as a result that we have rejected Christ and his church, etc. So this woman and those shamans, however you say it, um, shamans, is it? Yeah. These, uh, these people, they have, they have teachings as well. And let's look at the similarity between their teachings and the teachings of the, uh, there's other studies that they did of out of body, of um, people that are dying or nearly died, etc. Or, or, or have died. Firstly, these mediums, when they communicate with the spirits, the first thing they say is, death is not to be feared. 
That's the main teaching of these people. The second one, there's no judgment and there's no hell. That's the second teaching, exactly the same. Three, death is not as unique and final an experience as Christian doctrine has described it, but is rather only a harmless transition to a higher state of consciousness. Anyway, I can't stand that type of talk. You continue to perceive, to understand. So to you, you, when you die, it's not like the, 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 the um, Christians say about a judgment, etc. He says it's just a something where you go into another stage of your life. And you still think, you can still feel, you can still understand, you can still grow, you can still laugh. That's what, that's, that's what they say. Remember what the, um, the, 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 uh, the light said to the, to the other people that were dying or died? You have to go back to grow, develop more. doesn't matter what you've done, but just go back and grow. Same message. After death and out-of-body experiences are themselves a preparation of life after death. These people as well, by the way, they actually believe that they can initiate an out-of-body experience. They believe that they can go into some type of trance and their souls come out and gallivant around the place and then come back after a while. Uh, I've never really, you know, even when we did the life of St. Kiprian in Justina, St. Kiprian said that he was taken by demons to places and he talked with them. But it never said in, that, in, in his life that he actually, his soul could come out and he could communicate and that. And this is where, you know, some people say, well, St. Paul wasn't sure when his body, when his soul, if his soul left his body when he went to heaven. And St. Andrew, the fool for Christ also, he died, oh, sorry, his, his soul, that he thinks, he wasn't sure. They're not sure whether their soul comes in or their soul stays in, but they're becoming like in, in some type of ecstasy. I don't know whether these people actually do have techniques where their souls come out. Father Seraphim, I think in his book, I think he's inclined to believe maybe they do. I'm not sure. I actually got a bit confused with it, but I like to believe that they don't. I think it's like, um, you know, it's like a dream in your mind. You can dream that you're flying, but you're not flying. You're in your bed. And, you know, you could be dreaming that you know, you've won the Olympics or something like that. It doesn't mean you have, because when you wake up, you don't have a gold thing around your neck. <laughs> so um, that's maybe similar. And then these people go into trances, they let themselves go, and then the demons can act on their minds, etc. Now, whether they do come out of their bodies, I don't know. Um, but the point is here that some of the ones that are dying in some places in America, for example, they actually get trained, supposedly, in out-of-body experiences where the people that are dying, these people come in and train them and help them to leave their body, go into the next life, look around, see what's there, and come back. And then these people say, oh, I've been there. I'm not scared anymore. So that's what they believe they're doing. Whether they are leaving their body or not, I find it really hard to believe. But the main thing is, these things have spread around. I wanted to explain in, bet, in, in more detail what I said last week about these um, um, apparitions, etc. We said that people that are dying see relatives, for example. The ones in India saw their Hindu gods. 
And a fellow asked me, well, what are they? And he told me later on that he said, well, I wanted you to say that they are demonic. And I said, yes and no. Because if you look at the, uh, the, the, the data from America, where people, depends as well of what's in their mind. If a person thinks that the next life is hellish, can be hellish, they could actually have thoughts of those things. If a person thinks that the next life is flowers and fountains, then they might see those things. But, in, but at the same time, they could be real experiences that someone is seeing demons, etc. It's, it's, you cannot say 100%. For example, I said to you last week that the souls of the dead cannot come back to earth. And I, and I gave some explanations. The people that people see, the relatives and friends that people see, um, could be, one, in their imagination. And that's possible too, and I believe that that, that does happen. Because the person's like hallucinating. If you, some people, um, uh, you know, when they're dying, when they're in a lot of pain, etc., they can hallucinate. We, we do that ourselves. If we're, I've heard people say, oh, I'm, I was imagining something because they were hungry, they could have had a sugar low, they could have been hit in the head, they could have had a lot of things wrong with them, and they start to see that. They might see things that don't even exist. I mean, if you're in the desert, they, you see mirages, for example. That is one explanation. The other explanation is that there could be demons masquerading, pretending to be relatives and friends, so as to bring you some messages of the afterlife like it is in the, in the med, in, with the mediums that have all their messages and the occult, the other ones that have all their messages. All these people have messages. Don't feel deaf. There's this, there's that. Even that guy that I said, the guy who's the big famous one now. Oh, I forgot his name. What's his name again? The guy. Oh, John Edwards, yeah. Him, he has messages. He says it all the time. Deaf is not to be feared. Deaf is a transition. Deaf is good. And it's not bad. This, this, this. He goes on and he says it. So that's, he's a medium. And he has communication, supposedly. But anyway, so... Another explanation was, which people didn't understand what I said is, and the father, Alexander, gave an example of a young boy that died and in the next life he saw his brother that had died earlier. And I still emphasise that, to me, the souls don't come back. Anyway, but because the father said it as well, and some of you were a bit confused, I looked at it more and studied more and more and more, I actually read quite a lot about it, and it says that the following... That's what, and that's what the saint said as well, Saint Gregory the Great and I think Saint Augustine. The angels or the guardian angel of the person can come and appear like the person. People that haven't made it, people that weren't complete, people that weren't perfect, when they die, they don't have that ability to come back to us. When we do see someone and they're asking for prayers or whatever, they're warning us and things like that, they are the either the guardian angel coming in the form of the person so that we can recognise, or it is, could be a demon coming in the form of a person. And the saints emphasised that. And I went and I started to look more and more and then someone found for me 
in the life of Elder Jacob, uh, Jakovos of uh, Evia in Greece. In his life, he's passed away now. It's said that he was from the monastery of St. David of Evia. And the saint would appear to him often to this, to this holy man. But not as St. David. never appeared as St. David. He actually appeared as one of the other monks. And it says in there, so as not to scare him. So as not to scare the elder whereby the saint can appear and then the elder can become scared. So he would appear as a monk that was living in the monastery. And I've read that quite a lot now. I actually found a lot of that. This is something which needs to be understood. Now, you might say, well, how are we to, to know? How do we know when someone is something's from the demons, something's from God, or something is from our minds, our imagination? It can be anything. And that's why Father Seraphim, in his book, which I, at times is a bit complicated, but I have to read it about ten times, and then he actually says... It's, we shouldn't delve too much into it because we do not have the discernment to know. Is the person standing in front of me my mother? Is it the demon appearing as my mother? Or is it my imagination because I'm thinking about my mother? How do we know? And that's why the church has a nice rule. Reject visions and all these things as much as possible. Do not regard them because then you start to become tricked because we do not have the discernment to know what is from God, what is from the devil, what is from human nature. These are the three things, and the saints, a lot of them had that ability. They had the gift of discernment and was able to tell which is which. We don't. But on that, what Father Alexander said last week, if that's important, let's just assume, which, I, which, which in this case I think it was correct, but I think because uh, the church got involved in that matter that he said, that the boy, a lot of times, why does God, let's just say the ones that are from God, why does God allow the relatives at the time of death to appear to us and friends? A lot of people are scared. They're not ready to actually die. God in preparation to help them. Like, you know, when you take a child somewhere, like to a dentist's chair, then you've got to get them slowly, slowly, because they're going to get scared. So you take, when you say, you can just touch the chair. You can spin on the chair. Just get him on the chair, because you try and get him on the chair straight away, he's going to get scared. So you can, yeah, touch, do, familiarise. So that slowly, slowly, you can get him on the chair and start to work on him. It's the same as with... The, in the spiritual life when we are dying. Some of us are more spiritual and are kind of able to cope with the transition, but some of us are not able. We're scared, we don't know, we, the whole thing's terrorising, and therefore God allows these re relatives to appear, but they're really the guardian angel of the person, so that you can see it and go, oh, there's my mother, there's my great-grandfather, this is not that bad, and kind of it's a help in God's love. And that's why the saint says it can be um, not the relatives themselves, because they are where they are. Unless they are righteous, that's different. They became saints, that's different. But in general, no. It's the appearance. So that was a very important thing. 
The other thing I wanted to emphasize to you uh, from last week was the fact that we are made in God's image. And that because of that, we are very powerful beings. We have in, in our souls abilities which are powerful, great, marvelous. And that's why, as I said last week, there are people who, as I said, the, the example of the Optina elder, a woman who was having problems with demons, they used to appear to her and torment her, and her mother had the same ability, and her mother foresaw the martyrdom of the Tsar, which was unknown at that time, where it was going to be, etc. And Saint, the Saint, uh, Saint Anatolia, I forgot which one it was, one of the Optin elders, explained it and said, some people have this as a natural ability to know some things of what's going on, etc. So again, we come to it. We can see some future event or know something that's happening somewhere else, etc. It can happen for three reasons. One, it happens because God has enlightened us, which can happen most of the time he enlightens those who are holy. We're not. So therefore, we like to reject. Even if you get something right, oh, I knew that you're going to have an accident one hour ago. I knew that. And you reject it. We're not holy. We're not, we're not um, elders. We haven't got... We're full of passions. We don't even have love. We don't even have faith. We're full of filth. And then we think, all of us, and we think that we're going to have all these things. No. So that's one reason. can be from God. It can be from the devil. As St. John Climacus explains in his writings, that the devil can put the thoughts into you to make you think that you've got powers. He tells you, oh, you know what? In that kind of, uh, sorry, um, in Greece at this time, your grandmother's dying. Well, she died, but there was no reason for her to die. She was healthy. Then you find out later on, oh, she died exactly the moment that, yeah, because the demons can tell us that. And the third reason is it can be natural. Because we are made in God's image, sometimes people do have some marvellous type of abilities. That's why you see um, some people's brains, how they work, and other gifts that, that, that they have. They are, you know, sometimes they're demonic, sometimes they can be just natural, just like that. So there are three reasons. We have to reject, if possible, the three of them. And you might say, that doesn't sound very good. Are you saying that we should reject even from God? Well, what's the example of the life of saint? Christ appeared to someone and said to him something or whatever's going to happen, and he said, no, I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you. I'm not worthy to see you. And then it turned out that it was actually Christ. Was he punished? No. He was appraised because he didn't want to even see Christ himself so that he doesn't, as a result, become proud and lose his soul. So even, you know, I know a lot of people who, and I've read this as well, a lot of people who came to the church because they saw a miracle, for example, and they were so moved by that miracle, they come and a lot of them go. Unlike those who search for the truth through study, 
through experiences, etc., a lot of them are more stable. Not that all miracles, but in general, it's a weak type of... Uh, St. John Christum says, he who seeks miracles is because they don't believe. They don't really believe much. So therefore, we should try to reject these things and only... Or even dreams. Dreams can be from three sources. Dreams can be from God. Dreams can be from the devil. Dreams can be natural. The fathers of the church say, say, reject them. Do not take any notice of dreams. The only time you can take notice if the dream is telling you about you are going to have future punishment and to change your life, etc. Maybe then that might be the only time. Everything else, reject. So, I hope that, we, that that's been cleared up. That's why a lot of people go to the Holy Fathers and Holy Mothers and they would say, um, Father or Mother, whatever, I saw this or this happened or I felt this or this happened. You know, what is it? And a lot of those people knew that's from God, that's not from God. That's normal, that's this, that's that, you know. But we don't have those people around. And, um, I mean, in the whole of Russia, for example, the whole country of Russia, there only were a few elders in the whole of all those millions and millions of people. There were some in Optina, and then there were St. Seraphim of Sarov, and a few here and there, very few elders or eldresses but today, you know, there's this type of uh, madness where people run in to try and find elders and eldresses, etc., etc., you know. And sometimes I say to people, I go, oh, we haven't got any elders to help us. And I say back, if you did have an elder to help you and he told you what to do and you don't do it, then you will be punished more than what you are now with no elder or eldresses. We are not worthy a lot of times to have elders and eldresses because we are quite low spiritually. It's in the fantasy to run and, 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 you know, and find these people a lot of times. Some people look with sincerity, they do they, with sincerity, not out of pride. In my opinion, the majority of people look for these things because it's in their fantasy that they want to, because they read about it in the book, just like if a kid read Superman, he goes and gets a Superman outfit and he pretends that he's flying around. Some of them actually jump off because that's how much they're in out of reality. The same as when we read a book. We read a book about the Optin elders and the elder said, you're going to have a baby. And the person's so moved by that that the elder knew that about that type of thing and so they go around looking for something similar, thinking that that's it, but it's not. Elders and eldresses don't just tell us the future, which a lot of times is quite minimal. Elders and eldresses, their grace that they've got is to correct us in our spiritual life. And when we do have someone like that, we have to be obedient. So we've got people that want to be obedient to an eldress or an elder, but they can't be obedient at school or at work. A wife can't be obedient to her husband. A husband can't be obedient to his wife. Children can't be obedient to their uh, um, people or at work, etc. 
We live in a, in, a, in a time of disobedience, but yet we're looking for someone to be obedient to. My experience is when they find them, they become possessed. They become worse because then they have the truth, they don't listen, and they actually lose, they can lose their soul quite seriously. Don't seek what we can't do. Humble, humility, and what's called soberness. Sober. Let's be sober. What's sober? It's opposite to drunk. When someone's drunk, they don't know what they're doing. When someone's spiritually drunk, when they're not sober, it's like, ooh, they go, and they run there, and then they run there, and they read this, and they do that, and they go there, and they do this. It's just too much. That's not sober. Okay. I've decided to have a break, but before we do that, we've got another two minutes. What time do you Yep. Questions? Mark. People don't like to listen to explanations like this, what I'm going to say, because they think that we are calling everyone type of names. But it's not the point, because it happens to us as well. We have to realise that the demons work in all of us. They work in us, they work in them. They work in all of us. Archbishop of Erky of Holy Trinity Monastery, the Arch of the Russian Church Abroad, he wrote an article called Contemporary Possession, and he says in there that you know, a lot of times the demons work in all of us, but we don't know. We think that we could be doing something good, but it can be from the demons. In general, the demons do not want anyone to come close to the teachings of the church. For example, in one of the books at the back there called Spiritual Reading, there's, an art where there's a, one thing there which I really always remember, and it's a very good thing which will answer your question. This is to do with... If this happens to monks, how much more will happen to them? In the monastery, there was a monastery which um, they became slack, the monks, and they allowed lay people to come and live there, and they would, you know, become too much involved in gardens, etc., etc., not too much in prayer. And um, one day, uh, one of the monks, if I remember, I can't remember fully, but one of the monks saw, God allowed him to see, a demon standing, I think, or guarding the library. And so I can't remember, but I think the, the conversation occurred and the demon said that um, we have accomplished a lot here. We don't have to do much work at all because these monks, they don't do hardly anything. They don't pray, um, you know, especially when they allowed kids in. That was even better for us. Uh, for whatever reason, that could be there. And um, women they allowed in, and everything's uh, allowed, and it's like, but we are scared. We are scared that some monk out of zeal might try to begin to read those books that are in that room. He goes, those books, those rags. He called them rags. Like he actually, the demon felt an aversion towards the orthodox books. And he said, we guard that because if that happens that some idiot monk goes in that room and starts to read and puts these things to practice, he goes, we're finished. So 
if that happens to monks and us as Orthodox, we know. Why is it when we have to go to work we can wake up, but on Sunday we don't, and everyone comes halfway through the liturgy? Why? What's the whole purpose of that? And why don't we feel like reading? And why do we fall asleep when we start to read books? And why do we get itchy when we start to pray and other people get headaches and sick and feel like vomiting and etc.? We are in, living in the world. So we're not saying, oh, oh, that's really rude. You're saying that those doctors are possessed. I'm not saying they're possessed. I'm saying that the demons work in all of us to keep us away from the truth. What do the demons hate the most? Christ and his church. And that's why the main thing is he's not, he doesn't allow them to do it. But I believe that God allows uh, sparks of the truth to come out, you know, into the world. That's why you see even on TV, there might be all lies, but you might have a couple of sparks here and there of, like as I said, they showed on that Fox television, they had a whole thing about the devil and demons and possession. Then they might show this, they might show that. So it's there for people that are looking as a, like a starting stone. God does not leave everyone without having something. But in general, that's the answer. Any other questions? Vladimir. Question? Is your name Vladimir? I forgot. Yep, I remembered. You have a question? And Maria. Is that right? Do you have any questions? Nothing? Questions are good. Nicholas. Yep. The guardian angel. The guardian angel of the dead person. Sorry, don't yeah. The guardian angel of the dead person takes on the form of the... See, <clears throat> souls are invisible. Angels are invisible. But God allows them to, to take on a form so that we can comprehend and understand. In the next life, that won't be necessary because it's all a different way. But as humans in the beginning, we need that to understand a little bit of the soul, who it is, what's going on, etc. These are all by God's love to help a person. Okay, so we'll have that break, about five minutes, and then we'll come back and then, because um, I don't want you to have the same problem as last week with your, that pain of those chairs. Just on your question, someone reminded me, also, some people don't want the truth, they want to, they want to, hear things which suits what they want. Christianity means difficulty. It means stop your sins. The majority of the world don't want to stop their sins. They don't want someone to tell them about that. They don't want to have fear. They want it to be nice and beautiful. So they go to places where they will, as it says in the Bible, it tickles their ears, what they want to hear. That's another reason as well. There are... Um, you know, like we read the um, last week, we read some of those near-death experiences, some examples. There's also in the Orthodox Church examples of that. And I, can't, I haven't got time now to go through, but there's a number of them. One was a Serbian fellow, which I think they, wrote, they did a book on that, which was, I think, a fellow called Dushan, and he, he died and he came back. That was all fully Orthodox. There's another one, which is, an, which is a Russian example. Uh, maybe Father Alexander's talking with the name. You, you, Xiol. Do you know that name, Yuxiol? It's called the, the Amazing 
Axial case, which happened in the 19th century, where he um, he died. He wasn't very religious. He died in hospital, and then it talks about how the two angels came to him, which is correct. Orthodoxy says two angels always come, usually two. One is your guardian angel, and the other one is the angel which guides you to the next life. Two, the two angels. Well, in the other cases that we read of the worldly ones, there's no mention of angels. Pretty much none of them ever mention angels. They say, oh, I felt that there was something was an angel. But it's never in the Orthodox Church. We do teach that when an Orthodox Christian dies, he's, you know, met by his guardian angel. That's the one by one. And the other one is the, the angel, which is the guide, which is going to help him together with the guardian angel to go to the next life, to pass through the toll houses, etc., and then he went down to hell, this person, and he, and he heard laughter of evil spirits and, and things like that. And then um, he got scared and he prayed to the mother of God, which he never really even knew, but just remembered a little bit from his childhood. And then she immediately came and um, he was taken as well to heaven. And then God said to him that um, basically... Um, uh, not ready, which is similar to the other one, which I said, that's why they say a few similar things. But he was actually told about heaven. He was told about hell. He was told about sins, about his sins, etc., which is completely different to those other experiences. So it's good for you to obtain those type of things. That one there, I think it's called, um, but one of them was, I think his name was Dushan, was the Serbian one. And there's, oh, maybe I'll photocopy it, but there is, I do have this one. It was in Orthodox Life in 1976. Maybe I'll get it printed out for you. It was in the July-August issue, which is on the internet as well. And in the um, 1976, July-August issue. St. Gregory says that God, in his love and mercy, allows souls to return to their body shortly after uh, death, so that by seeing hell in particular that they come back, change their life because they fear to go there. And as I said, in those modern experiences, the ones that were mostly published are good experiences, but there are some even to Protestants and even some to unbelievers that actually do see some experiences of hell. And Father Seraphim says, well, maybe that's a little bit more close to the truth. You know, when, you, when a person comes back and doesn't speak about hell but only speaks about nice things, that that is wrong. Because in the next life, there's heaven and there's hell. If you just mention heaven, there's a problem. Also, the people that come back from orthodox near-death experiences or after-death experiences, they change their life. They become more God-fearing. They begin to fast, pray, go to church, commune, fast. Uh, confess, etc., change their lives, while these people, a lot of them that actually come back, a lot of them become hostile to traditional things of, of Christianity and start to say that it's not like that, but it's like this, 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 and completely change the true meaning of the life after. So that's basically the, um, the difference between theirs and ours. For example, in the life of St. Anthony, while Anthony was sitting in the mountain, on the top of the mountain, and he looked up and he saw um, 
someone, a soul of someone, being carried up joyfully. Filled with wonder, he pronounced them as the... Um, as a, uh... Anyway, it was the soul of, of um, Amon, a monk, uh, who lived an, an ascetical life down to his old age. So, in the other encounters, they don't speak about going up. It's very rare that they say that they, their souls go up. It's like they enter into the realm here, close to the earth, but not going up. In Orthodox literature, there's always an ascending. Some of those examples they are, but in general, in our Orthodox literature, it's always angels taking the soul of the person through the air, through the toll houses, as it's called, which I'll speak about now, to heaven. Now, the toll houses, the Orthodox who struggled go from earth through the air to reach heaven. When they are going through the air, they are met by, and even can happen when they're dying, which we'll come to later, uh, they're met by demons who begin to accuse them, showing them their sins, etc. They're called toll houses, like we go over the harbour bridge, we pay toll, and some people say that's silly, and as if there's toll in, in, the, in heaven, in the, in the air, etc. These are symbolic. They're just ways for us as humans to understand spiritual things. We cannot understand the spiritual things unless worldly images are used. Like Christ, when he gives images, the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet, and the kingdom of heaven is like a, a person who went to look for a pearl, and all these type of things. These are images, worldly images, to help us understand the spiritual. So, the, these are toll houses, it says that as the angels are taking the soul up, and then there's arguments every single, basically there's one demon for this sin, another demon for this sin, another demon for that, and they begin to argue, and then they try to take the soul. And then the angels begin to say, no, but he repented for that, she did this, she did that good work, etc. A lot of times, this is what I'm trying to say to you, that the person, it's true that they did sin. They did sin, and the angels sometimes don't have anything to offer. Because they say, well, the demons might say, oh, and she did this. And the demons go, yeah, but she gave money to the poor. She did this, she, can, you know, she did some good deeds. She helped the church. She gave spiritual books out, etc., etc. Then the demons get a bit, they don't, you know, they don't, they go back. But sometimes, this is where, you know, it sounds primitive, it sounds babyish of these scales of good and bad, but, you know, there is truth to that. Our good, the good things that we do, has to outweigh the bad things. The best is to wipe out all our sins. A lot of times, we don't. A lot of times, because people are involved in their families, people are in the world, people, some people are slack, some people are ignorant, some people don't have ability. There's a lot of reasons, but a lot of us die with sins. A lot of us die with unrepentant sins. Saint Theod uh, this Theodora, she was a nun, is a good example there in our, in our literature, which says that she went through the toll houses and she was confronted by these demons continually and she used to try and hide behind the angels to protect her. The angels held bags of coins. Now, someone say they don't have. This is symbolic. It's to explain a spiritual 
concept. There's no bags of gold. It's just like when you see icon, you see bags of gold or these things. They are to help us understand. The bags of gold represented her spiritual father that was on earth's prayers for her. She had difficulty passing through the toll houses. All of us will have difficulty passing through the toll houses. That's 100%. The more we suffer here, the more we repent, the more we do good deeds, the easier it will be. But we will. Now, this is where people go, it's too hopeless, it's too, this is too much. And it's not fully like that. You know, God's not cruel. We look at God as being cruel and go, oh, how can he do this and how can he do that? And what happens if someone's trying or didn't? You know, there's a lot of situations. God's not cruel. And this example of, of Theodora travelling through the toy houses is, the, is very, very hopeful for all of us who, you know, are going to have a lot of problems. That is that her spiritual father was praying for her on earth. Her spiritual father was serving liturgies and was praying for her soul. This is very important for us to understand that at the time of death before and the time after death, we are in need of prayers. We need to have, firstly, someone or people left behind who will pray for us. That's important. We have to, even if we can organise ourselves, that we give money to a monastery that they can do 40 days of liturgies for the soul. To have panahidas or memorial, mnemosium in Greek, memorial prayers, that is very, very important. These prayers help the soul. We have to have from earth a relationship with our guardian angel. Some people say, what does that mean, a relationship with a guardian angel? Exactly that. Like we have a relationship with our friend, with our husband, with our wife, with our father and mother. We have to also have a relationship with our guardian angel because our guardian angel helps us in this life but also will help us, as we've said, when he meets us at the time of our death, in the next life. We need to have a, a loving relationship with our guardian angel. That begins now. Praying to him. We have prayers that we pray. There's an akathis to the guardian angel that we should do. We should pray to our guardian angel every day. We should be sensitive when we sin and we have made our guardian angel to stand away from us. But when we repent, the guardian angel comes close to us. This is a relationship which is necessary because he, or the guardian angel, will be the one, one of the people who, one of the spirits that will help us. But also, see how important it is to have a spiritual father. Someone comes up to me, I'm going to say this, even though some people are going to become shocked and think, oh, what a horrible man, but I'll say the truth. Someone comes up to me and says, oh, Father, my, um, my brother died, okay, and he's his name. 
Okay. I don't know him. I will commemorate him. I will do services all the time. I will commemorate him. But I don't know him. You know, when a priest prays with his heart, as St. John of Cronstadt says, it's different to when a priest prays for someone not with his heart properly. I mean, if I had love, if I was a super, like a great person, a big saint, yeah, you know, I could do that. But a lot of times, I can't. I don't know the person. But when someone, same when someone comes to me and says, oh, can you pray for my mother? She's sick. Or the person, you know, I don't know the mother. I've got no relationship with her. I still do the prayer. I can still do malebans. But that heart is very important. St. John of Cronstadt says, very important, the priest's heart to participate in the prayer. When I know someone, that's different. Because I know the person. I have a relationship with the person. The person, um, I've, I've, I've helped the person, let's just say, from, from the spiritual father, I've helped the person with their sins, with their repentance, helping them in their struggles, helping them with their problems in life, and there's a relationship with that person. And therefore, when that person needs help, or when the person's dying, or when the person has died, then me, as, myself as a priest, then I will feel, because I know that person. What does that mean? That we, well, everyone's got to know me? No, it means that everyone has to have someone that they know will pray for them. Someone who will take care of their soul. Someone who will pray from their heart. So when they're standing in front of the altar and they are praying in the liturgy, when they're taking the particle out in the proskomidi, and especially at the end when the priest drops all those little particles into the blood of Christ and says, wash away the, the sins. The most powerful thing. Still there is help, even when the priest reads names he doesn't know. But, in the example of St. Theodora, it wasn't a priest from in another city that was praying for her. It wasn't a priest from another suburb that was praying for her. It was her spiritual father who loved her and had concern for her, and he was standing in prayer and serving liturgies and, and, and panahitas and um, praying individually for himself, for that person. So we are, some of us do not have a relationship. It's good to also have a relationship with monastics, with a monastery, so that when you pass, when there's need, and when you pass, when you're dying, when, we, when we're dying, and when we pass away, we know that the monastery will be praying for us, which is very powerful as well. These things is what helps us. So, yes, we are. A lot of us are going to die with sins unrepentant a lot of times. Not, and, and don't say, oh, I'm going to do this. This is dangerous to say, oh, someone's going to pray for me, I'll just will continue to sin. That's dangerous. I'm talking about... People that are struggling, we, a lot of us do sins we don't even remember. We sin all the time. The more we confess, obviously, the more we struggle, the more we humble ourselves, the more we commune, especially if, you know, it's, the most great, it's a great thing when someone dies repentant with communion. A lot of times the soul of that person can pass through the toll houses much e easier. They still might have some unrepentant sins, and then the angels can then give our good deeds. 
Do we concentrate on good deeds or we think it's ridiculous and primitive? Do we have good deeds? What are our good deeds? Taking care of our family. Our good deeds are being honest at work, to struggle with our passions. Our good deeds are to fast, to go to church, to help the church, to, um, financially, to help the, um, the monasteries. Our good deeds are to help the poor. Our good deeds are to buy books and spread them out to people. These are good deeds. For example, you know, um, I've said it before, and I'm, you know, Like, for example, that. Someone, I, I said to someone, I'm going to get these books. And someone said, I want to put money in for that. Okay, you can put money for that. That's him. That's between him and God. If they put the money in. He wants to do that good deed for his family or for his soul or his wife or whatever, for his parent or someone that's died. Then these books are then given out to someone. This book here, Confronting the Devil, Magic and the Occult. We've got a lot of books that we give out. That goes to the person. The person reads that. He repents because he, he went to a sorcerer. He went to a medium. He repents. He tells other people. Or the book goes to someone else. That person can die. Maybe their child goes and looks at their library one day and says, oh, what's, what's this my father had? Oh, this is interesting. Then he changes. And that person changes. And that person changes. Even after we've died, this book can still be going on and on and on, that good deed that we've done. And that adds to our soul even after death. That also helps. But that's an example of a good deed. Money to the poor. There's so many poor people now. Helping old people. That's a good deed. These are the things that our guardian angel and the other angel are going to say to the, the demons at that, at that time. And they're going to say, no, he's ours. now because he did this and she did this and she did this at that time and that time and she did that. And say, yes, yes. Yes, he did. But, he, but God, you know, but he did this and this and this and this. Good deeds, etc. He prayed that night. The angels will say, just like the demons will say, on September the 20th, he sinned with someone there at 10 o'clock. They know everything. They've got everything written down. And the angel goes, yes, yeah, he did. But, the same night or the next night, that person went or cried or repented or whatever. Uh, sometimes that, they might not even have confessed. Maybe they didn't get in time. Maybe they could have even died after that. We don't even know. But the point is that we need these good deeds to, to help us. And if we haven't got them, that's it. So what's wrong? What's so hard about that? Why does someone say to me, oh, it's too hopeless a situation? The situation is not hopeless. The situation is easy. We do our good deeds in the name of Christ and we repent as much as we can for our sins. The obstinate elders say, what's the easiest virtue? Some people say, oh, I don't fast. I can't fast much. I can't pray much. I can't read much. I don't do good things much, whatever. Uh, my sins are too much in me. I can't stop them, which is true. I mean, all of us, if we really fight our passions, we'll see that we can't really stop a lot of our passions are very hard they're so fierce in us but the optimal elders have an answer for that too because some you know there's a writing there's some writings of saints which says anyone who dies with a passion with an active passion will not be saved and when you read that it's like you cannot 
It's just too much. You say, oh, this is, this is too much. People become hopeless. That's because the fathers, some fathers of the church, that's, that's how they speak. You know, with an active passion. Obviously, some of those passions aren't very active. If you're dying of cancer and you're really suffering, they're not active at that time. So that's, that's also God's blessing. But in general, sometimes we can die with passions that are still active in us, but the fathers say, you know, I can't be saved. How do we make up for that? What's going to happen if, we, if that's the case? And the often elders repeat and answer, the easiest virtue for, for, for one to practice is self-condemnation. It's the easiest virtue. Fasting is hard. Prayer is hard. Try and pray, try and pray. If you really pray with your heart, you get um, knocked out. Uh, going to church can be hard. Reading a book can be hard. Even doing good deeds, you can, it can be hard. Oh, why don't you go and visit the person in the hospital? I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to go and visit the person in the hospital. How about the old person? I don't want to see old people all shriveled up. I don't like it. It makes me sick. Some people say, say that. I don't want to do that. But when we do see our passions, we have what's called self-condemnation. What a beast am I? I can't even go and visit my grandmother in hospital. Or, oh, I can't even feel for my kids. Or, I can't even respect my husband even though he loves me. Or, 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 etc., etc. Self-condemnation. When we have self-condemnation, at the time that the demons will try to take our souls, and we have got a, a, a um, humble heart. Sins, yes. Active, yes. But repentant, but uh, you know, especially self-condemnation, acknowledging our sins, then these, what the Father says, that the, this replaces the virtues. If you, for example, someone says, I don't want to go and see old people, I don't like it, for example, let's just say that, because that's one can say that's really horrible. I don't want to go to the hospital or to the nursing home and see my grandmother because I don't like it, just I don't like it, I can't do it, it makes me sick or it makes me upset or, or whatever. And the person's condemning themselves but wants to be able to go, has a desire to want to go. Or a woman who just cannot respect her husband, for example, but she's just Maybe because that's her, her mother was like that, you know. We'll talk about that in the next talk where you can usually tell the man, the, boy, the man you want to marry, just look at his father and the girl you want to marry, look at the, her mother and you pretty much know how they're going to be. So if their mother was a horrible person, used to put the husband down, they usually they, they pretty much come the same. So it's really built in her. This girl, this woman, for example, might have seen this disdain of men from young and it's really in her. And she can't stop. But one difference. She wishes she can stop. And she says to God, I wish I can be proper. I wish that I can be. Just wish. The saints say in God's eyes, it's as if it's been done. Now that's very powerful. In God's eyes, the person who wants, it's as if it's been done. And I mean really want. And, and, we, and we show that we really want 
because we're also trying. We don't just sit there like dummies and say, I wish I can become really good, but you don't make an attempt. I'm telling you, you make it an attempt and you're failing continually. And the more you fail, the more you see that you're really off and you just let out a prayer and say, God, I wish that I can be, you know, I wish that I can take care of a sick person. I wish that I can be better to my husband or my children. Some women don't take care of their children very well. Some men don't take care of their children very well. And I can, you know, when people come for confession or in, I don't do it now, but when in the old days, you can always tell. When a person says the sin, there's a sign that you know that the person is really trying and struggling in that they're really humbled about it. And the humility can only come if they try. If they're not trying to combat the passion, it means that they won't have humility. So, you might, so the person says, um, I, um, my mother wanted me to go and help her and I didn't go. And the priest will say, that's not very good. Yeah, no, I'm you know, head down, they're really repentant. And the other person goes, well, I haven't got time. And they become right, quite aggressive. That person is not struggling. See, the person who's humble, the person who acknowledges, the person who wants to be better. We all want, St. Paul even says it, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, I do. So don't have this hopelessness and go, oh, it's finished, we're not going to be saved, and there's all these, God's cruel, and the next life is too difficult, etc. It's not. Desire is very important because God examines the disposition. God looks at the heart of a person. You might see a person that's an alcoholic. You might see a person that's a drug a drug addict or something. You might see a person which is a prostitute and you go, oh, you know, that's horrible and this and that. But we don't know what's in their heart. We don't know that that person could be a prostitute because she was brought up like that from very young or she was forced into it. We don't know what's going on there. We see her doing it, but we don't know what's going on. But, what we, but God knows what's in her heart. We don't know. And on the day of judgment... What's in our hearts will be looked at. We can fool, all of us can fool our friends, our relatives, our priests, because people can be tricky in confession. Oh, there's a lot of people that are quite tricky. That can, you can, I don't know, people that can actually act humble and pretend they're crying and things like that. But God on the last day judges everyone purely because he knows everything, what's in our hearts. Violent death. What does God allow violent death? What does God allow people to die the most horrible types of death? I've often thought about that. You know, how can it be, you know, when you look at um, pictures of soldiers on battlefields, blown up, you know, decomposing, horrible scenes. But some, some of us, of course, can watch that on TV and because we become incensed, because we watch all the time, we don't feel anything. But some people do. Uh, what has God allowed that? They don't even get buried, a lot of those people. Some of them just left, left on the battlefield or buried in unmarked graves, etc. The answer is that the violent death has a spiritual benefit for the person and the spiritual benefit is 
that they receive forgiveness of sins. It doesn't mean that everyone that dies from a violent death is sinful because we have examples of saints who also died violent deaths for other, for other reasons. But in general, violent deaths are spiritually beneficial for us. There were four monks that lived in the, in, in the desert. And they had as their aim to live together and go to heaven together, to be together as they were on earth, which is the reason for people to get married. We get married, a man and a woman struggle together as, as Orthodox Christians so that in the next life they will be together as they were on this earth. If you don't have that, then you're wasting your time being married because to me that's really the most off existence which we'll talk about in the next talk of marriage. That's the, these monks, that, that was their aim. Two of them died and their souls went to paradise. One of the other two, there was two left, two went to paradise, two left. One of them, one of the two that was left, he went to the town to do a, uh, a job and he fell into a sexual sin. The devil then jumped on him and started saying to him, forget it, there's no salvation for you, made him get all confused, darkened his thoughts, etc., and um, wouldn't allow him to repent. So when we can't repent sometimes, it's the black ones trying to you know, influence us, but that's where we have to become experienced like St Peter and acknowledge our weakness. The more we acknowledge our weakness, the more we can repent easily. Well, I sinned because I am an animal, or I'm an idiot, or I'm weak, I'm stupid. When we have that attitude, it's easier to repent. When we've got a proud, when we proud, the prouder someone is, the harder it is for them to repent. The more humble they are, the more easy it is to repent. This person obviously must have had some pride in him as well, but as well, you know, a monk and he fell into those sins, you know, those things that people can make a person go. He wasn't very experienced, let's put this way, in spiritual life because God forgives everything. The two brothers in paradise followed him. So the two brothers who made it, because I remember I said to you before that the souls can't get out of where they are unless they've been saved and God's permission allowed. They understood that it would be difficult for him to repent. So what did they do? Now, get ready now to be shocked. They begged God that their brother who had sinned should die a violent death. So that his sin would be forgiven and he could be with them in the kingdom of God. These are from, this is from the Yerondiko, from the sayings of the Desert Fathers, etc. Interesting, these two brothers that were in, these two monks that were in heaven, were praying to God that their other co struggler on earth, the other monk, to die a violent death. And people said, it just doesn't. Makes sense. But these are the things. The spiritual life is not black and white. We like to think of spiritual life as either that or that, and there's no in-between. And when we have that type of attitude, we go into schisms and deception. You know, like people say, oh, if someone, if, um, if a patriarch prays with a heretic, the church that he belongs to is finished. There's no more grace because he did something which is wrong. 
But yet the church does not think like that. And we're going to come to that because I want to do lives of saints on that. Let's not have this black and white attitude. And here's one here. Saints praying for someone to be, uh, have a violent death. God heard the prayers and sent a ferocious lion to tear him to pieces. God allowed the lion, according to the prayers of the other two, to do that. And people will say, well, that's still it's cruel for God even to allow it. That swimmer, what's that swimmer with the big flippers? What, what's his name? Uh, Thorpe. Now, his parents, one can say, were cruel as well because they used to make him go and train and train and train for hours and hours and hours in the cold water every morning. I think they've afternoon, they very big training. And... Uh, one can say that that's, that's cruel, because it is, it is suffering there as well. But he won all his gold medals that he, that he wanted, etc. It's very famous now. And people, no one really has ever said, I think no Australian person, the land of the, the, humane, the humane land that always looks to everything which is nice, and everything the church does is cruel, but everything else. Anyway, Thorpe won for us all these gold medals. And, but how about from young, the poor thing was in the water continually and suffering this and that. No one talks about that because all we're coming is we won. We won. Australia came top in swimming, which we do have a very good swimming team, obviously, and all these gold medals and things like that. It's the same here. But why is that allowed? Why is no one really caring about him and his training from young? Or other people in gymnastics and other gifted people that parents I would say just about tormented the children a lot of times to do what they did. Sometimes not good, but anyway, in general. You know, if someone becomes a famous pianist and that child was from young and maybe the parents wrapped it, like, hey, come on, you know, put the fingers properly. Some of them did that when they were young. And now the person's a famous pianist. No one says cruel parents hitting the child's fingers, etc. Why? Because it's famous. The person's famous. God doesn't, he's not reluctant to allow, allow bad things to happen to us if it means salvation. Because being eaten by the lion is a, can last five minutes, ten minutes or whatever. The person themselves, when they go to heaven, would never say to God, why did you make me go through that? He would say, Thank you, glory to God, for allowing that to happen to me because now I'm in paradise forever. God heard their prayers and sent the, 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 the line to tear him to pieces. The other brother, however, was told by God about the upcoming death of his brother. So God enlightened the other brother and said, this is what's going to happen. When the other brother heard the growling, he became agitated and he fell on his knees and asked God, please don't take him away. Don't take him away. Because I'll be left on my own. So the other brothers were thinking about his soul. This brother was saying, don't leave him because, don't let him die because I'm going to be left alone. Some people can say, oh, that's greedy or whatever, but not necessarily because that person can lose his soul because he's by himself. Only God knows exactly what's better for the other, for, for, for the um, person in heaven can pray for something to happen, but only God knows exactly what's the best solution. And in this case, just as the lion was about to go and attack the monk, um, 
from the prayers of the other monk on earth, the, the, the line twisted away and ran off, and the other brother remained alive. In conclusion, obviously, the main thing is, in this case, the person wasn't torn apart. But in general, violent death cleanses the soul of a person. It achieves forgiveness of sins, as does sickness, cancer, AIDS, leukaemia, and all these other things that God allows for our good. Another example of a, of a person was um, a woman, for example. She attended an all-night vigil. This happened in Greece. On her way home, she was hit by a car and died. Violent death. Horrible death. One can say she even went to, she even went to church and God allowed her to, to, to have such a horrible death. But we don't know why God allowed that to happen for her. She may have repented in the church. That was the best time. God knows the best time for us when it's time to go. Is it today? Is it in five years, ten years, whatever it is? God knows when is the best time. Even if someone dies in a way unrepentant, semi-unrepentant, or like St. Xenia that we did a few months ago, His, her, her husband died unrepentant. But why did he die at moment and why didn't he die in five years after that? That was the best time for him and as a result of that, that moved her Saint Xenia and she prayed for him and then she became a saint and I guarantee that he was taken out of the place that he was because no, God cannot ignore such prayers that are done in love for someone so as I said before it's not only the sinners that can die violent deaths but also a righteous person can die a violent death. Maybe they've got little sins there, or maybe they're just for greater glory in the next life. We know some saints that were great, that were pure, but God allowed them to die violent deaths, to give them greater glory, and maybe also to cleanse them if they've got some sins that are still left over. But for most of us, the violent deaths are for our good. For example, uh, in the desert, there lived a monk. One day, the monk was found torn to pieces by a hyena, by a wild animal. Um, the man that found him prayed to God to learn why did this happen? Why did this monk uh, get torn apart by this animal? Through an angel, God answered him and said, This ascetic, being a man, also fell into a slight error, which is why God allowed him to be punished here, by a tragic death, so that in the next world he would be entirely pure in the face of God. So we mustn't have this attitude that all disasters that occur and everything bad that occurs is something which is, you know, people say when they see that I'm a priest, one of the common questions is, why does God allow children to suffer? And what does God allow that? And what does God allow that? And, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to understand. If the person that's asking me is not seeking salvation, then it's hard to explain that God allows it so that those people can be saved. If the person's seeking salvation, I go, do you want to be saved? Yes. How much? Oh, a lot. Well, if you're going to suffer for five minutes or two years or three years and you're going to live forever in paradise, does it matter? He goes, no. Well, that's the reason why God allows it. But it's hard to explain that to other people. Many of the saints went, underwent martyrdom, St. John Chrysostom, St. John Baptist, 
St. Stephen the First Martyr, etc. Why? To give them greater honour, greater reward in the next life. So it's not just sinners that die violent deaths. The righteous can also die right there. Now, suicides. The church does not bury suicides. And what do we hear when that happens? The church is cruel. The church is not, has got no love. The church is horrible to do that. How can they not allow a person to be buried that's committed suicide? But even this action that the church does has concern, not only for the flock, to say, you know, don't you dare commit suicide, but also it's beneficial for the person who is not allowed to have a funeral. Why is the person, how does the person who hasn't got a funeral, who's not even allowed to be commemorated in Orthodox services because they committed suicide, unless they're mentally ill, that's different, but in, but in general, those who die, they're not allowed to be commemorated, they can't have a church burial. Even that is beneficial for that soul. Now, let's look why. To explain, I think we, we look at some um, examples of those who died without, a, without commemoration or funerals, and then you'll understand. Saint Pachomios, a great ascetical saint, once forbade the burial of a monk who lived in laziness. This monk was really possessed with laziness, and Saint Pachomios the Great, a great saint of the Orthodox Church, says, that monk is not going to be given an orthodox burial. This is exceptions, but that's just, we can learn from it to see. The monk's relatives were outraged. How dare you do that? And that's not right. And what kind of a thing is that? And is that Christian? Is that love? And every other word that we, we, we know about. Um, Saint Pachomius said that if we were to show honour to him, this would increase his distress in the next life. Because he died, obviously he must have died unrepentant as well to some extent, this would increase his distress. In other words, it would make him suffer more in the next life if we were to give him an honourable funeral. These are exceptions, but it's interesting. Whereas we hear in the lives of saints how... People that died that were unrepentant and having a big funeral with flowers and, and everyone's there and it's glorious, etc. And the angel is crying over there and they go, why is he crying? He goes, well, they're burying him but he's like a dog. You know, he's, he, he's horrible. And he's crying, one, because that is making the soul of the person worse. We'll continue on. Saint Pachomius says, I'm ordering insult and disdain for his corpse. By doing that, I'm giving him a partial defence because he's been disdained like that, that God will give him some relief in the next life. This is why I take no care for the body but for his soul. St. Pachomius looked at that as being beneficial for his soul's. Those who have drowned at sea, torn to pieces by wild beasts, those who have been lost in wars, those who have died far away, those who have died with no prayers for the church, 
those who don't, we don't even know what's happened to them, they too become, because of this contempt of their body, because of this, as if their bodies are rubbish, in a sense, you know, when they die or drown and fish eat them and beaten by sharks or, or lost, etc., that disdain of their body, even though it's hard for us to understand, uh, is actually for them beneficial. So that is why sometimes God allows these things to occur. Now, some of you might not be able to get into, get to understand that, and you might become a bit agitated. I think you should relax a bit and think about it. The more we are struggling for our salvation, the more we would understand it. I'll give you a few more examples and you'll understand. St. John of the Ladder one of the greatest saints of the Orthodox Church, who in a few weeks we're going to celebrate his feast day on the Sunday, the fourth Sunday, something like that, I think the fourth Sunday. We dedicate a day to St. John of the Ladder because of his book, that was called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. Anyway, St. John of the Ladder praises those monks. This is in, he, he lived in Sinai. This is exceptions. We don't do this ourselves. We don't want to have dead bodies all around the city. But you'll see what I mean now. St. John of that appraises those monks who ask their abbot that they should not be buried like people, but should be cast to the wild animals or into a river like animals. And many times the discerning abbot, the abbot understood, listened and gave orders that they should not be buried and be thrown into the forest, into the desert or into the water or whatever, um, and that um, not even any service be done for them. Not even a funeral service be done. This is exceptional. But it does show one thing. Not every rejection of a funeral, not every, not every uh, contempt for a body, treating the body badly or what hap you know, as happens to a lot of us, does not necessarily mean it's bad. And we can see from the saints in these exceptional cases where they say, just throw me in the forest, let me be eaten by that. And some of them were. Some of them even went themselves. They just left their monasteries. They, they knew they were going to die, went out there and died so that their bodies can be left in the um, forest to be eaten by animals and to be disdained. Because they believed, they had a, a sense that they were sinful and they wanted to be saved that way. What does that mean for us? It means for us that are we going to be told that we don't want to be buried no. Does it mean that we don't want to have funerals? No. What does it mean? It means that don't judge the church when it doesn't bury suicides and think of it as being bad because that can be for the good of the soul. St. Arsenius told his disciples, this is St. Arsenius the Great, another great saint of the church, told his disciples to tie a rope around his legs and drag him off to the mountains. No burial. You know, some people say, oh, my husband died at war, I don't even have his body. This is horrible. Yes, where's his body? No one knows. Well, that disdain of his body, that horrible thing that happened to his body, can help his soul. Another holy monk asked the monk living with him that when he dies, to take his body and throw it into the deserts that can be eaten by wild animals and birds. He felt unworthy to be buried. These are 
exceptional cases. The third day after his death, he appeared to the monk that threw him away, threw him in the desert, and said, Brother, I pray that God will show you mercy as you did for me. Well, what, what mercy? He threw him in the um, he threw him like an animal in the um, in the desert. What's that mercy? And it says here, believe me, God has been very generous towards me on account of the disdain of my body, which has lain unburied. Ready? God told me, behold. For your great humility, I have ordered that you be with St. Anthony the Great. That is from the writings of our holy books. Because of the great humility that you had, and this person had humility, we don't even have humility, but this person had great, he was ordered to be on the same level as St. Anthony the Great. Humility. Never say that people that have been murdered or people that have been lost, etc., that these are all tragedies. Tragedies humanly. Spiritually, that's beneficial. Now we come to a very... Sorry, any, any questions on that? Yes. Uh, there was an example, I don't know if I wrote it in here, of a person who was really leading a bad life and some saint prayed that the person become mental, mentally ill or possessed maybe so that they will be judged as a child. In other words, because they're mentally ill, they can't be judged. Or because they're possessed, they can't be judged. So people that are mentally ill, a lot of times, yes, depends on, could be from sins, but in general... A mental illness is very humbling. And people say, oh, a mental illness is really bad, depression or this or neurosis, etc., etc. Oh, that person always washes his hands or that person does that. Oh, that's horrible. That's horrible. But it's not. It's, it's humbling. People run to the doctors and say, I'm going I'm to get the doctor to give me pills so I won't have that. Why? Why is it necessary? I mean, a lot of times, this is for our good. Saint Father Seraphim Rose says that in the last days, the podvig of the orthodox, podvig means the ascetical struggle, won't be necessarily with fasting, because we get proud of that, won't necessarily be with praying much too, because people get proud of that as well. What? People can get proud of anything. People get proud just walking in the street. The podvig, in other words, what's going to be the askesis, which is in Greek, the uh, in the last days especially, will be mental illnesses, enduring mental illnesses. When someone's mentally ill, it's really hard to be proud, right? This is allowed by God for our good. And people run to psychiatrists and run. I mean, they look, there's people that are suicidal. There's people that, are, that have got psychosis. These, these are exceptions. I'm talking about in general. Depression. We have saints that were depressed. Melancholy. Obsessive behaviour. It doesn't mean that all these things are God's punishment or something bad for us. It is something which is for our good. I've got mental illness. I've got plenty. One day we'll talk about them. I've got plenty of problems. But I use them and say that's what God allows 
That's what I have to accept. And, there, and, it's, and it's humbling. Just like being sick is humbling. The pain of the soul. Did I answer your questions? Both of them? Oh, yeah, no, we always, we always pray that God deliver us from those things, you know, our Father who art in heavens, and deliver us from the evil one, and lead us not into temptation. We pray that God, we don't pray, we don't invite those things, we're not spiritual. Some saints did, like the saint who went up to someone who was, um, I think it was a, she was living in a monastery, a nun, I think, and she had the feelings to go into the world to go and fall, and then the saint said to the demon, to the demon that was in her that was making her to go out into the, to go back into the world to fall, he says, you come in me. You know, now, who? I wouldn't. Would you do it? I don't think so. <laughs> well, I wouldn't do it. And Father's complexion went a bit white. I don't think he'll do it. So, but he did. He was a great saint. He had humility and he did. We do not ask for these things. We ask a Christian into our life. Do whatever is good for us. If it's for me to have cancer, let that be. If it's for me to be lost in the desert, if it's for me to be eaten by a shark, whatever, you know what's the best, when, when, how, etc. That's what we pray, but don't invite. Even though the saints did, we can't say. We are not at the level to say, throw my body down at Martin Place and let it be left there. We don't do that. Or throw it out in the desert, or throw it here. We don't do those things. The saints did, because they had humility. You know, I can imagine, sorry, but I would have to say that a person who did that, for example, they say, oh, I want my body to be thrown in circular key so it can be floating around and everyone can see it. I guarantee you that that person that said that, even though they're dead and bloated from the water, that they'll still have a smirk and going, is everyone looking at me? Is, there, am, 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 is, is people looking at me? Am I getting attention? That's not how the saints were. Understand? We are so proud that we can make, we can get proud from picking our nose. That's how bad it is, that we pick it better than someone else. That's how bad, that, that's, you know, sick, isn't it? So, the pain of soul. The majority of people, the hour of death, they feel unbearable pain, as St. Mark the Ascetic says. So the dying process is painful. Now, we read some lives of saints where they said, oh, and the angels came and there was a beautiful calmness. Those are exceptions. In general, the dying process is difficult. I know it's an uncomfortable topic, and I don't like it myself because I find it scary. But the truth is the truth. If you want to read those other books that talk about near-death experiences and all those things and how nice it was and sweet it is, etc., and you go and talk to this light, which just could be, it just could be the light in the operating theatre, <laughs> then you can do that. You know, but I'm telling you now, what is an orthodox teaching? The soul leaves the body unwillingly. The body, sorry, the soul doesn't want to leave the body. Because this is its home. It's been there for so many years. It's scared to leave the body. So in general, we do not want to leave. 
Therefore, the hour of the soul's departure from the body is very distressing. When the soul is leaving the body, it is very distressing. Not only because it is leaving its own place, its home, and also leaving the people behind, that's distressing. Leaving your relatives, leaving your friends, leaving your children, leaving your mother, leaving your father, that's distressing in itself. But also the process, when the soul comes out, it is distressing. In the funeral service, there's references to say, in the funeral service saying that this is a most terrible time in our Orthodox funeral services. During this painful time, the soul needs comfort. And that's why the church has prayers for the person, for, the, for those who are departing out of their body, for the departure of the soul. There's a whole canon, there's prayers which a priest does on the deathbed of the person, which I gave you those um, icons last week, last month. That prayer is very, very important. Liturgies, prayers, individual prayers, and the priest. Now, there are people, like in Greece, I don't know, Russians, if they do it, but in Greece there's some stupid um, superstitions that you don't let a priest go to a person that's sick because the person's going to think that he's dying. You know, these are stupid things. When a person's close to the church, he never has that because the person depends on the priest. He knows the importance of the priest. Father, pray for my child. Father, pray for my job. Pray, pray for my wife. Pray for this. My wife's pregnant. Pray all the time. So therefore, when a priest comes to us in the hospital at home, we're not going to have this thing, oh, it means I'm dying. It means he's coming to pray for us. We need the help. It might be that we're dying, but it might not be. But there is a special service for the departure of the soul, when the soul is coming out. Sometimes the soul is so scared to come out. When the priest reads the person, the prayer, the person comes down. Prayers are very, very important. And the prayer goes, Yes, Master, O Lord our God, give ear to me, meaning the priest, your, your sinful and unworthy servant at this hour. And then the priest blesses. And release your servant whatever the name it is, John, for example, from this unbearable pain and this continuing bitter sickness. The church is full of love and has everything. That's just one prayer. Now, we said before that since death is so terrible, the person, it's natural for the person to be scared, cowards. That's part of the human nature. We said before that even Christ was scared of, the upcoming, of, of his upcoming Sufferings and death. God allows, this is important, just like with the dead bodies, just like this, just like not people having funerals, God allows his servants, which can include others, we don't even know. You know, we think that, that all these rules only occur for us as Orthodox, but I believe that God takes care of everyone in his own way. Exactly what he does, what happens, I don't know. I know these teachings are for the Orthodox, but people that don't, aren't Orthodox also have fear. And people also have violent deaths. You know, why um, an, African, an African child that's dying in Africa and, uh, from starvation or AIDS or whatever, and they have horrible deaths, does that mean, what, that because they're Orthodox, we forget about them? I don't know what's going to happen to them. But... The same principles occur 
for everyone. The results, I don't know. Now, we're talking about here orthodox. God allows his servants to taste this cowardice and the fear of death for their own good. Why? Because it gives them forgiveness of their offences and greater glory. So, in other words, there is benefit in the person having this fear because fear means humility. When you fear, you become vulnerable and you say, I'm scared. You know, you're humble. You're humbled from it. You're suffering. That gives you forgiveness of sins and humility can never go astray. Humility is the best thing for all of us and that's what it does. St. Gregory the Dialogist says that during the time of the departure of the soul from the body, the person experiences fear of death and dismay. In other words, he feels shock, he can feel sadness, panic, depression, etc., agitation. A man who, has, who was experiencing this after his death approached, appeared to his disciples in a pure white robe. Uh, yeah, anyway, there was a, he says an example, St. Gregory, that a person that suffered a lot at his death before these things, was panicking and scared and all that. Later on, he appeared to his disciples and said and showed him the glory which he had received as a result of the sufferings at his death, during the time that he was dying, sorry. From this we conclude that the fear of death and the anguish generated in the soul, etc., wipes out sins which a person has committed and may have not repented or remembered, etc., or was slack. It's all in God's mercy. If one now, when some people say, "Oh, I went to a funeral, and the person in the coffin looked horrible," that means that that person didn't have a good death. That means that person went to hell. I used to actually believe that too. I didn't even know until I looking up these things. I actually came across that no. It means that the person fought with hell, was in fear, was terrorised, was in shock, did panic, and that was for their good. Doesn't necessarily mean that the person was not went to, to um, heaven. I've noticed, it happened when my mother passed away, I remember when I came to the hospital because I missed out by 10 minutes, and I came there, you know, she was white and she was like had the deathly lock type of thing. Then I read her the prayer of, there's two prayers. There's one before, which I didn't get time to do, but I read the one after. There's, there's a prayer before the departure of the soul to help the person depart. Then there's another canon, another prayer, prayers which are done which helps the soul after death. I read her that prayer. And I saw that as I was reading the prayer as a priest, that her appearance began to change. And she became karma, even though she was dead. And this is showing how important the prayers are. So that's why we have to be close to the priest, so that we can get this help. Where it's bad is when the person doesn't decompose. That is a sign that there's something wrong. For example, if you... In Greece, I don't know about Russia, but in Greece they unbury the body after three, four, four, five years or something, and they get the bones, they wash them in wine, then they put them into a box and put them into a special little chapel or whatever it is in the cemetery. Sometimes when they unbury people, they haven't decomposed, but the bad sign 
is when the person's bloated and has not decomposed. That means that that person has got some type of curse on them. They might have a curse even from a priest, as I've read. They can have a curse from their parents, or they could have even cursed themselves. Those people need to be read uh, uh, the prayer of forgiveness by a bishop of, for excommunication. It sounds like they were cut off from the church somehow. And a lot of times, once those prayers are read, they're reburied, and after that, they, they, can, they can decompose. So it shows that. But don't think that if someone's in, the, you know, in a coffin and looks terrorised, it means that they've lost their souls. It doesn't mean that. Another thing which is terrorising at the time of death is the appearance of the demons. Just like the soul feels fear of dying, it also feels fear when it sees the demons appearing at the, that which can happen at the time of death. At that moment, the person also needs prayers. For example, in the lives of saints, uh, it's written that a lazy monk at the time of his death said to the monks who were praying for him that... Uh, He said that um, while he was dying, the demons appeared to him, but the monks were praying for him, praying, because in the monasteries they, they take death as being part of life and they, and they were praying for him, not knowing that there was demons there, but they prayed. And he said to them, just before he died, he said to them, if you weren't here praying for me now, they would have seized me and torn me to pieces. And he said, but because you're here close to me and praying, they can't come close to do what they want to do. That's why it's important for the priest to be close. When someone is passing or dying, it is important for the priest to come before, during, after. Not after, not just after, like it has in a lot of our churches where the first time a person even comes to church in many years is at his own funeral. A woman who was dying started trembling so much that she couldn't be restrained. Now, some people can say she was going for some medical thing, but anyway. Those presents sang the paracasis to the Mother of God, like we did just now. I did that on purpose. We did the paracasis today to the Mother of God because the Mother of God was also scared to pass through the toll houses. She was also scared to die, and she asked that Christ come himself and take her, take her soul through the toll houses because she did not, even though she's the mother of God, she did not want to see the faces of the demons. And that's why we see in the Domitian, the mother of God lying there on the, in that, on the bed there, and Christ is holding a white, wrapped around like a child, which is her soul. So the, the mother of God helps us in this life, at our death, and after our death. And we have to get a relationship with her as well. And if we don't have a relationship with, with the Mother of God, then we've got nothing. If we've got to have a relationship with our guardian angel, we have to have a relationship with our, our saint, the one that we're named after, and we have to have a relationship with the Mother of God. She's the most, after God, she's the most powerful. Being human, she understands. Especially in the case of death, she was scared herself. Therefore, that's why today we did the paractasis to the Mother of God. 
These people, I don't know why there was no priest at the time, maybe they were somewhere where there was no priest. Some villages in Greece, I think this is a Greek example, don't have um, priests in all the villages, there's a, there's a shortage. So that doesn't matter. They did the mother of God, Paraclesis, and then they started. Shortly later, she opened her mouth three times and gave up her soul calmly. She died pretty much after they started the Paraclesis to the mother of God. So if she was going through some insulin problem and she was convulsing, I, I find it hard to understand how the paraclysis is a medical solution for that. This was the convulsions, this was from the fear of the demons. When I was in Greece at a monastery, I was walking somewhere there, I was visiting, and I, oh, by the way, this, this girl here asked about when I said before about the example of the, 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 the lay people in the monastery, not visitors, I meant that the monks allowed those people in the monastery to live there with their children in parts of the monastery. That's what, not visitors. So thank you for um, that. Anyway, I was in this monastery and I heard these moans and groans. And then I went to some, I went just around the corner there was a, a cell you know, where, the, where the monks lived. And I saw this monk, and he was on the bed, and he was rolling, and he was like he was like uh, in a lot of agitation. He was moaning and groaning, and he says, "Quickly, go get the yeronda, go get the, uh, the 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 spiritual father, the abbot." So I run and get the abbot, and I go there, and I had never seen this before, even though anyway. And then we um, the, the 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 elder got his petrohili, put it on the person. And this person was rolling, he was twisting around, he had to put the hilly all over himself. One can say, is he a possessed monk? And no, he wasn't possessed. He was being attacked at that time. And after the, he was moaning, groaning, this and that, he was really fearful and really painful. And then at the time, a few minutes after the priest started to read the prayer, the person calmed down. He wasn't dying. Now, what had happened to him? Well, because... He's a monk, and he struggles. This person, this particular monk, really struggles. He's very faithful. He used to confess often to his spiritual father, etc. God allowed that to happen to show the hate that the demons have towards the monastics and all Christians who struggle. So that actually was an example where it might appear that he was possessed. He wasn't possessed. He was being attacked. Something similar happens to... At the time of death, we are being attacked, whether we can see visually or both and physically. And one important thing, I remember once someone that was going through the same thing, a, lay, uh, a priest, he was going through the same thing. He was being attacked like that. He wasn't dying, but he was, even though he felt like he was dying, he was just being, something was on him and he couldn't, couldn't, couldn't take it. It was like he was going to die, like he was going to die, he was being attacked. And um, he started to say the creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, make, make and he was like, he couldn't, 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 he was like he was carrying a million tons on him. The, the heaviness was on him that he would not, but anyway, he finished it, it took him a while to finish it, and then later on the thing dispersed. The creed is very important at the time that someone is dying and after the, 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 the time of dying to show that that person is 
orthodox. Because when you read these prayers, the akathis that I gave you, etc., those who didn't come, there's one there. It says, even though I have sinned, even though I have done bad in front of you, I have never denied you, and I have always confessed in an orthodox man manner, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, it's very important that we also have an orthodox faith at our death. Get used to saying the creed because we will need it, and if not, at least those around us, if, we, if we're unconscious, to say the creed on our behalf, we need to have confessed orthodoxy at the time of our death for our souls. Not only just good deeds, it's also orthodox faith. And after the creed, to say, I believe everything that the Orthodox Church teaches, if you can do your cross at the time that you're dying, to say, I confess all the dogmas of the Orthodox Church, because a lot of times we don't even know the dogmas. Some of you don't even know. If I say, how many wills does Christ have? Two wills, one will... You know, some of you might say stuff which is actually what the monophysites believe. Some of you might say wrong things about the icons, which is what the iconoclasts believe. Some of us ignorantly could be confessing something which is not orthodox, which can be detrimental for us at the time of our death, even if it's ignorant. Less punishment, but still not good. Therefore, we say the creed, and we say, I confess and acknowledge everything that the Orthodox Church teaches in its dogmas. If you die like that, that is a very, very big thing. Because today, to keep your faith as an, as an Orthodox person today, not like Russia and Greece where everything was Orthodox. Today, nothing's Orthodox except for here. So we live in Carlton. What's Orthodox? One little dot just here. You go outside, and it's very difficult. So therefore, for someone, as they said to me once when I was in Serbia, um, some monks said to me, if you can keep orthodoxy in this day and age, that will be bigger than any ascetical feat that one can do. So if, if someone says, I'm going to fast for 40 days with bread and water, that's good. But the Hindus do the same. Right? I'm going to sleep on the ground or on a bed of nails. That's okay because some of the Indians do that. They, can, they even can charm in, um, snakes. These things are good, but today especially is to keep our orthodoxy in a society which is completely opposite. So that's why we always say the creed. I think that's um, all I've got time for, even though I've got pages and pages of all the things I wanted to say. Uh, just quickly. How do we profit souls? Give alms. Give alms for the dead. That obtains forgiveness. Very important when someone's died. If you love them, give money to the poor. Candles. Light candles for the souls in front of your icon corners, in the church. 
icon lamps, light an icon lamp at your home, at the, ch uh, at, the mon uh, at the cemetery. You put the icon lamp there on the grave. These things help the soul immensely. Prosphora. You give prosphora, wine and oil. Hardly none of, no people bring oil to the church. Hardly no one brings wine to the church. These things are important. The wine becomes the, the blood of Christ. You know, that's very important. You go to the priest, wherever you go, to all your parishes, and you say, what's the wine that you use? And go buy some. One bottle, two bottles, one case. It's important. Oil. They must bring oil to the church because the oil is, being, is poured into the icon lamps in the altar or on the icons. Those, you brought that oil. Those prayers that the saints are doing for you because you're burning oil in front of their icons at home and in church. Also, panahitas and all those services for the dead, that's also important. In all our services in the Orthodox Church, midnight service, matins, vespers, compline, etc., there's always references to God to forgive the sins of the departed. The church prays for the departed every service. Continually, it prays for the departed. We have Every Saturday is dedicated to the dead, except when it's a feast day or feast period. But in usually every Saturday, the services that occur, is there's a canon and there's references to the dead. The church prays for the dead. Saturday of All Souls, which was yesterday by coincidence. Yesterday was Saturday of All Souls and the other one's going to be the day before Pentecost. Those two days is where the church prays for every single soul of the Orthodox that have departed this life. Um, those who died without a funeral, as I was saying before, those who didn't get a chance to re even to repent, weren't even properly to recover, those ser services help. And it says, again, we pray for the blessed memory and eternal repose of all those who have fallen asleep in the hope of resurrection. From the beginning until the most recent days, it prays for all. And on Pentecost itself, there's three prayers that are done in the church where we, where we kneel down. The third prayer is dedicated for all those that have departed, in particular those that are in hell. So the church even prays for those that are in hell. If you, get, if you have that prayer in English, read it. There's, a, there's references in there to, that the church prays on the day of Pentecost for all but also prays for those that are in hell, and there's alleviation of those souls, and even pagans have said to saints that when you pray for us, when you pray for us, we feel alleviated, we feel less, a little bit less suffering, and not only that, a lot of these prayers have actually helped people come out of hell, like we saw in the, in the case of Saint Xenia. Don't be surprised, I read an example which just shocked me, uh, which was about the Emperor Tra Trajan, I think they say, he was a persecutor of Christians. He killed Christians. He persecuted them badly. And he died. And St. Gregory the Dialogist, Pope of Rome, he actually heard a story that one day that Emperor, as he was going somewhere, a widow came up to him and said, you know, Your Highness, these people have done bad to me. I want you to help me. 
And the, and the emperor said, uh, when I come back from the war, because he was going to war somewhere, and she, she goes, no, but something might happen to you. Say, out of compassion, this horrible emperor showed a good deed, and he actually dealt with the people that were doing bad to this woman. When St. Gregory the Dologist, centuries later, found out about that example, because I think Trajan lived in the first or second, he lived in the fifth, I'm not even sure, sixth. When he found out about this example, St. Gregory was so moved by the one, the one good deed of this emperor. One good deed. These are exceptional. So he prayed. He, he, was so much, he had so much love that he prayed for 40 days for the soul of this emperor. And what happened? The emperor was released from hell. And Christ, I can use a colloquial term, like told him off at the end. He goes, I did it for you, but don't ever do that again. Don't pray for the impious like that. But he did it because of the prayers of the saint. What does it show? It just shows that what prayer can do, what love can do, what good deeds can do, this shows it. Like this person that killed Christians, etc. Never. When I when I used to when I was a lay person, I went to Greece, and I remember certain people that did some. You know, I was travelling around. I went on a pilgrimage, and someone said, "I'll oh, come and stay at my place, and come and do this, or, or help me in some ways." They, did, I was a lay person then. They didn't know what I was going to become a priest, but I remember that now, and I and I commemorate those people. From my heart, because they did a good deed. You might say, oh, that's a bit by. It doesn't matter. It's human. We obviously feel a lot of times for people that help us. We are moved by that. And there are people who are commemorated. They're on, my, they're on our proskomidi list. They get commemorated every single day. They didn't know that they were going to give hospitality to someone who later on would become a priest or whatever and get all this help. So those people have died. That good deed that they've done. All they did is open their house. They were nice to me. They gave me um, food. Very, they had you know, love and all that. But I remember that. The same as you people. When you do good deeds, someone might die. You don't know. That person might become a monk. That person might something else. But, that, but we don't know. And that person can pray for your soul. <sighs> That's... Um, Oh, then you can do special liturgies where you give, where you where you say to the priest, "I want to dedicate." Some priests can't do it because it's difficult, but in Greece they do it a lot. Is they say, "I want to open the church up. I want to have a liturgy for the soul of my departed mother or father," and the priest does a special liturgy for that. It's very hard to do that because that and people say um, that forty days liturgies are the most important. A lot of parish priests don't come do everyday liturgies, etc. Monasteries do, so you must get that uh, 40 days because the biggest help you can give the departed soul is to give that person 40 days of liturgies. And that can only be done at monasteries like Jerusalem, Manathos, Jordanville, for example, does that. I think Kentland doesn't serve every day, but you can still, they can still do prayers, but especially 40 days of liturgies with God's help when my mother passed away, I actually was able to do it. It was difficult for me, but I did the 40 liturgies for her. Now, some of you might say, oh, you're biased because she's your mother. That's correct. She is my mother. 
And that's why I did it. She didn't stop me. She actually never obstructed me in my life in a Christian way. And she became a nun before she died. So therefore, um, obviously, that's where you have that. That's why you do good to people. That's why you show love to people, so that you can get these um, prayers and help. By the way, just for those who um, you always never lose opportunity to try and get commemorations. My, fa- my mother's name is Justina Nun, and my father's name was Spiridon. So those two names, whoever gets benefit from the talks, whether on the tape recorders, whatever they're called, the CDs, whether you people here and feel benefit, then you can commemorate them. You, and you might say, well, you commemorate already. We always pray continually. Many, as many people as, as can that can pray for a soul. See, I use the opportunity. You use the opportunity too. Whenever you go, wherever you go, you meet a priest. Father, I want you to put that person in. You give alms for the poor, for the, to the poor, for the dead. Never lose opportunities to help our dead. The more we think about them, the more we think about, hey, what a minute, if I'm helping them because they've died, how about me? And that makes us look at our own death, etc. Any, any, any last questions? Yes? What happens if a has That can help them. Even that can help them. See, that's, that's the point. We don't know why. But God tries to bring everyone to us. He's not going to just pick and choose. He tries to bring everyone to salvation in the way that he knows. Exactly what happens to that person, we don't know. I, I read once it says that a person can jump off a bridge, you know, to take their own life. And sometimes they even repent as they're going down. We don't know. We don't know. But, um, but generally, we don't bury them. But God... There's so many mysteries surrounding this topic, we don't know. All, we, all I want you to take away today is to know that whatever happens is done from God's love to save our souls. If you are seeking salvation, you'll understand everything that I said. If you're not seeking salvation, it will all be too difficult. Seek salvation and everything else will come to you. Uh, through the praise of the Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, Amen.